0: Preparing for a, uh, a baby is exciting. We've had several born into our congregation in the last year, and it takes me back to uh, our experience with that multiple times. the excitement of finding out that you're expecting, and the doctor's appointments, and the ultrasound, and the heartbeat, and baby showers, and all those kind of things, But there was also, I remember, a fair amount of stress getting ready and preparing for the baby to come, baby-proofing the house, you know, plugging up those outlets and all, uh, putting together a crib, maybe painting, wondering if it's a boy or girl, and the overarching not knowing when the little one would come, but knowing that there was a baby on the way. Exciting and stressful. What if, uh, that's a very concrete thing many of us have experienced, what what if instead of expecting a baby, knowing that a baby was on the way, what if you were expecting God to come? What if you were certain and you knew that God himself was going to show up, what would you do to prepare how would you get ready? And that's our focus today as we turn to Mark chapter 1. Continue looking at following Jesus. And I wonder if you knew for sure that God was on his way, would you tidy up a little bit? You know? Would you uh, watch different things on TV? You know, Maybe clear your browser history? If you knew God was going to come and spend some time with you, how would you prepare? And our focus today is on John the Baptist. We looked last week at the fact that he is the messenger who God sent before the Messiah, Jesus Christ would come. And John was very much about preparing for God, very much expected to meet God soon. So let's see how he says to prepare, and not only how he says to prepare, but how he shows us the way to prepare. Would you read with me God's Word, Mark chapter 1. We're going to focus on verses 4 through 8, but we're again going to read verses 1 through 8 for the context. Please read with me God's Word, Mark 1, verse 1 and following. This is God's Word. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before you, ahead of you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. And all the country of Judea was going out to him, and all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. John was clothed in camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist, and his diet was locusts and wild honey. And he was preaching and saying, After me, one is coming who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. I baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. Lord, would you meet us here today with your Spirit accompanying your Word that we might know the new life that you offer, and having come to meet you and know that life, that we might live it out to the full, that we might have an abundant life as you would desire for us. We pray in the mighty name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, thinking about preparing to meet God as a... I raise that question with you. I wonder if that has you thinking, like most people probably, that of the end of your journey on earth, of, of the time of death. I mean, after all, right, we've seen lots of movie good guys and bad guys say something along the lines of, you know, prepare to meet your maker when they're facing some sort of life and death situation and likely not to make it out. But what if... What if you could meet God now? That if preparing to meet God had an effect now and before the end of your life, what if, in fact, preparing to meet God didn't mean your life was near the end, but that there was a new beginning for your life? That's the perspective I think John the Baptist has as he prepares the people to meet God, as he speaks and declares of the Messiah who would come, as he talks about that not at death, but as an entry point into new life. So prepare to meet God and find new life. And and to understand that, what I want us to do today is to walk through this passage To understand how to prepare to meet God now, and not at the end of your life, but to have a new life now, I want us to look at three things. First of all, God's messenger, and then God's message, and then how that all matters for God's people. So God's messenger, first of all, we learn about God's messenger that he is set apart, Look at verse 4. John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. He is literally set apart, living where people don't live. In the wilderness, you might translate that as in the desert. In uninhabited places where no one would generally choose to live. But that's where John is, set apart. But he doesn't just live apart. He he dresses differently. Look at verse 6. He's clothed with camel's hair. And wore a leather belt around his waist. There's some thought that that was uh, the belt, especially was a mark of the prophets in days of old. In fact, Elijah was dressed very similarly. We can read about that in 2 Kings 1:8, and he has a leather belt as well, mentioned in 2 Kings 1:8. And this is John, set apart, literally apart from people, but also dressed differently and also eating differently. Verse 6 continues, his diet was locusts and wild honey. It might seem a bit dramatic and, and maybe over the top, but if you think about the context of what God's people were going through at this point in time, there had been no prophets for 400 or so years at this point. And so John is very obviously marking himself off as someone set apart. Dressing differently, eating differently, living in a different place. He's set apart. And that gets attention. But it's always the fact, if you think about it, that God's people, that His call always sets you apart. That it is a defining mark of God's people that we would be set apart. Usually, and and most of the time, not as dramatically as John here with his attire. You know, we're not called to be Uh, dressing differently like Amish folks or Mennonite folks or whatever, right? The God's set-apartness is more about how we live, the choices we make, what we watch, how we browse the internet, what we do with social media, all those kind of things, that that if God meets you, you are set-apart. And you will most likely find that you feel a difference and a distance from other people. But it's set apart, not separatism. Because there is movement, there is engagement that God not only sets apart, but he sends on mission. That's the case with John here as a model for us, that he was set apart and sent on mission. Look at verse 4. John the Baptist appeared preaching. Verse 7. And he, John the Baptist, was preaching. John's particular calling was to preach. And the word there uh, it, it has the sense of proclaiming, even along the lines of testifying or testimony, not so much what you think of as you think of a preacher, someone standing at a pulpit, having prepared during the week a message based on a text and thought of careful ways to craft it and those kind of things, but more declaring what they have immediately received or experienced. In fact, if you look just a little later here in Mark chapter 1 in verse 45, the same word appears where we read, he went out and began to proclaim, that's the same word, freely, and to spread the news around. And who is that? Well, it's the person that Jesus just interacted with and cleansed of his leprosy in verse 42, that he went out and began, you could translate that, preach, or you could translate what John did as proclaim, to testify to what has happened, to what you have experienced, to be a witness, you might say. And and that's John's call, that he's delivering a message, not that he had carefully crafted, but that had been given to him by God, his experience of having met God. The Lord says that in verse 2 of Mark 1. I send my messenger. In fact, over in John's Gospel, as John the Baptist describes his experience of seeing the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, pointing to Jesus, he says in John 1.33, I did not recognize him, the Messiah, Jesus, but he who sent me to baptize in water said to me, he upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining upon him, this is the one who baptizes in the Holy Spirit. John's understanding was that he was set apart and he was sent on a mission that God had given to him of declaring what he had experienced. Declaring what God told him was going to happen. In fact, he is a prophet who reveals the future because God has directly and immediately shared it with him. Verse 7, he's preaching and saying, After me, one is coming. Verse 8, he, that coming one, will baptize. That John knows what's going to happen because God has revealed it to him and sent him on this mission. He's the greatest of the Old Testament prophets, Jesus says, over in Matthew 11. None greater born among humanity. But Jesus then says in the same breath, but the least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. That the pattern, the the paradigm here now in the new covenant realities that we're experiencing is that God has set us apart. Not to a particular place like the people of Israel in a particular location to, to be there and have people come to them. But in fact, God has set us apart and sent us on mission that we would live differently, that we would speak differently even if what you do day in and day out is most of the same, you have a new sense of purpose. If you understand, having met God, that now you're no longer your own, that you're bought with a price. You're, you're no longer a part of everyone, but you're set apart on a mission that God particularly has for you. And, and whether you come to faith in your 20s, as I did, and Maybe change your job or maybe not. Maybe your convictions lead you this way and maybe not. If you meet God, that sense of purpose should strike everything that you do. It should color everything that you do. All that you do ought to have in the back of your mind. How does this reflect on the God who has set me apart? That I might do all things for His glory, whether I eat or drink or whatever I do, that it might bring honor to Him 1 Corinthians 10.31 talks about it. And it could be heading overseas to be a missionary. It could be raising godly children. It could be serving as a politician or a policeman or a pastor. You can be set apart without really going anywhere because it is an internal sense of mission and purpose and calling that we see in John as the messenger here set apart and sent on a mission but it's also a feature of the message itself and that's where we want to go next there's God's messenger and then there is God's message what John shares as he proclaims and one thing that he shares first of all is the dramatic change is necessary. That the message of God is dramatic change is necessary. To prepare to meet God, dramatic change has to come. Verse 4, he's preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Repentance, uh, in, the, in the Greek of the New Testament, is a word that means change of mind. It's two words put together that originally had the sense of uh, after or late plus uh, understanding or grasping something with your mind, and probably had the sense of noting something after the fact. You know, you're reflecting on it, and, and you realize, oh, that's what that meant, or that's what that was all about, especially with a tinge of regrets or remorse, oh, oh, that's what I should have said. Or, oh, after the fact, almost to the sense of it's too late. Interestingly, the the Old Testament equivalent for this word in the Hebrew is merely and simply to turn. It could mean to turn left, to turn right. But especially in the context where it's used in the sense of repentance, it means to turn around or even to turn back. It's not that you're headed in a direction you turn right or you turn left. It's you're headed in a direction and you realize that's completely the wrong way. And you turn around. That's the sense of repentance in scripture. One commentator puts it this way. It's not just feeling sorry or changing one's mind, but turning around. A complete alteration of the basic motivation and direction of one's life. John didn't come saying, you need to add this ceremony to your life, or you need to start doing this thing or that thing, trying harder at them. John came to say, you're wrong. You need to turn around. You're headed the wrong way. Go back. Turn around. Confess your sins that you might receive forgiveness. He puts it that way. It's a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The the word forgiveness has a sense of release or pardon, removing or setting free a debt. The sin, all our mistakes All the things we should have done and didn't, or the things we did that we shouldn't have, words, thoughts, and deeds, all of that racks up a debt bigger than any credit card bill you have ever seen, or even the national debt of certain countries. It is huge because those sins and those debts rack up against an infinite God who made you for relationship with Him, who told you how to live and made you so that on your own, you would want to live for Him, but in our own sin, we choose to go another way and rebel against Him. And it racks up debt upon debt. And to meet God, John says, dramatic change is necessary. Repentance, turning from it, but it also requires faith. Jesus says, so right in Mark chapter 1, just look down at verse 15. Jesus comes on the scene and his first words, as Mark relates them, are, the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the gospel, the good news as we've talked about it. That repentance and faith are are two sides of the same coin. They, they go together, and if you don't have faith, you don't have sincere repentance. If you don't have repentance, you don't have faith. They go together. Repentance in the sense of you recognize this is the wrong direction. These are the wrong things. I have the wrong attitude. This is all wrong. At the same time, recognizing that God is who He says He is, and His ways are good and what He says they are, and that I need to embrace Him and trust Him, even when it seems like I don't see the way that I would walk by faith in Him and His promises. And they go together. You, You won't turn from that unless you see this is good, and you won't see this is good unless you recognize that's bad. They have to be together. Repentance and faith go together in the good news. And like faith, which Ephesians 1, 2-10 says is a, is a gift, right? Not of works so that no one can boast. Repentance is a gift as well. That God grants through the working of His Spirit. And that leads us to the second point here of not only dramatic change that is necessary, but symbolic cleansing, which is the topic of Baptism. Look at verse 8 again. John says, I baptized you with water, but He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. He came in the wilderness proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All of that going together. Just like water removes dirt and uncleanliness from physical things, so the Holy Spirit coming to baptize you removes the sin internally the outer visible public sign of water baptism expresses how god works to bring about inner spiritual personal reality the baptism is a sign of the work god does inside it's an important distinction to recognize As you're a part of Crossroads Community Church, because this difference, something that sets us apart from many other Christian churches, which are fine and good and are going to be in heaven with all of us. But one of the things you will see us do here at Crossroads Community Church is to apply the water of baptism through sprinkling or, or pouring. I try to scoop enough water that I could kind of pour in my hand. I wish I had big giant hands. Maybe I should get a little cup or something, right? But we, we, we do that, that sign of sprinkling or, or pouring upon the person being baptized to demonstrate God working That we believe that the way someone comes to faith in Jesus, the way you meet God, is that He chooses to pour out His Spirit upon you. And He comes and washes you clean from your sin inside. And as He's given us the sacrament, the mystery of baptism, it is a preached sign. It is as much reading the scripture as anything else. As you see the water applied to someone's head, you say, that's the way God works. That's a distinction for us. And I don't, you don't have to accept that, but I want you to understand it. That it is an emphasis upon God and the way he works, not so much about the recipient and what they've done. That's a distinction. That's why we will baptize children, even babies, as well as adults if they are in a believing family. Because we say this is the way God works. This is our hope for this little child. That God will pour out His Spirit upon this little one. That as they grow up in the church and as they see other people experience the same sign, the inner reality will come by the grace of God. That as Peter said and showed in Acts chapter 2, that the Spirit would come from above and wash us clean. That's what we most need is that inner transformation. That dramatic change. You can try to repent, but you're not going to have the faith. Nor can you try exercise faith if you don't have the repentance. They go together and they will come only as God meets you with His Holy Spirit. As He comes near to you by His grace. John came to God's people telling them of of God's grace that something is wrong calling them to repent and so I ask you how is your repentance it's not a one-time thing it's an ongoing thing well we're going to celebrate Lord willing communion next week and this is a great week for you to think about your walk with the Lord to examine yourself and your repentance now what what if next Sunday you firmly believed that as we worship together God was going to show up? How would you prepare this week? Go deeper than the surface. Not just what you do. I went to church, I prayed. I didn't call that person the name that I really wanted to, but underneath why? Why are you doing what you do? Why are you not doing what you don't do? What's going on? Examining your heart. Last Sunday night, uh, we opened a little bit of a can of worms in our Bible study with the youth, with NextGen, and we looked at Cain and Abel. And it's an interesting passage. I read it this week if you want, if you dare. It's not clear... Why one was accepted and one wasn't. But what is clear and what keeps resonating with me is God asks Cain, why are you angry? That's a huge question. Why are you angry? Why, why are you afraid? Why are you acting that way? What's going on? That's the question. That's the, that's the place that repentance happens. Especially as you couple it with... a a confidence in the god's word is what he says it is that it is the path of life and how am i not lining up with it because this passage is for you and i this is for god's people we've seen that with god's messenger and with god's message and then i want to close with just this last focus here on god's people what do we see in this passage about god's people and our response and the way we prepare to meet God. well, God's people move toward God? It is a defining feature of God's people that we will move toward God. Look at verse 5. This was literally happening. All the country of Judea was going out to him, to John the Baptist, all the people of Jerusalem, and they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River, confessing their sins. There may have been some Gentiles... There, there were definitely some lowly tax collectors and sinners, prostitutes and other people whose lives don't reflect godly values. But they moved out. They moved toward where God was working. That is what God's people are called to do, to move toward God. If you're reluctant to move toward God, You probably have either more repenting to do, even perhaps repenting of your repentance, or you probably have some more faith to embrace in believing God is who he says he is. That is, you probably need a greater awareness of your sin and God's holiness, of your faith, imperfection, weakness, and God's goodness. And you need the biggest thing is the the way that that gap is spanned. That as you recognize your sin and your your inability to do anything about it and to make yourself right with God, you recognize someone has to act. And then you go, wait a minute. God has acted. The baptism of the Holy Spirit has been operating. That even as water is poured out upon the recipients, that the Holy Spirit comes down from above, that God works. But it's even more than that, that God has met you. Not only do you move toward God, but you recognize that God has met you. Look at verse 7 again. He was preaching, John was preaching, and saying, after me is coming one who is mightier than I, and I am not fit to stoop down and untie the thong of his sandals. He is so great, so mighty, so wonderful that I'm not even worthy to go down to his dirty, probably stinky feet that have been in the dust and the dirt and the mud and the roads of Israel in those days. I'm not worthy to get down and do the most menial task of just untying his shoelaces, so to speak. You're only describing that situation, God Himself, right? The God has come down, the mighty one, and John recognizes he's not worthy even to untie his shoes. So, what does that mean? Think about that. We're not worthy. John has this sense of, I'm not worthy even to untie his shoes. And he came down to get his feet dirty in sandals. That God came down. God has met you. Even more than that, he didn't just live on in that slice of time wearing sandals. God and humanity linked together. That God lived perfectly. Then he died the death that you and I deserve to die. That he took on the cross all of our guilt and our shame and our sin, paying the full penalty for it, which only God himself could do. But he had to be one with us so that we would have an adequate substitute that a lamb would never provide, but the lamb prophesied that God in sandals could do. And he rose from the dead, having paid the full penalty. And then sends His Spirit to meet you, to live inside of you, in your very soul, changing you from the inside out. This is new life. We, we messed up and didn't read the Scripture, I don't think. Did we read the Old Testament passage earlier? This is it. Ezekiel 36, 25. The, the prophet says, This is what God has declared will happen. Ezekiel 36, 25. I, God says, will sprinkle clean water on you and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all of your idols. He's not talking about your body physically. He's talking deeper. Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. The first step of repentance is recognizing you're not doing any of those things. And if you want to do them, and you recognize this is a good way. This is the best way to go even. That you need help. And just say, God, I need your spirit within me. I don't want to do what you want me to do, God. I don't want to do what I understand your Word requires of me. Lord, meet me here. Forgive me. Change me. Help me. Transform me. He says the same promise with a little bit different words in Jeremiah 31, 31 and following. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. God says, I will be their God. I will be your God, and you will be my people. That's the order. That's his desire, that you would be his people, and that you would have him for your God, because he has met you. He has come for you this this passage testifies and the message is still the same how do you prepare to meet god as god's people you move toward him recognizing that god has met you sometime in the spring of 1994 i stumbled across a radio station where a guy was talking about the second coming of jesus christ his, uh, his argument and his logic was compelling to me. It was very analytical. And he did a lot of things with numbers that I don't really remember. Uh, bad interpretation. But it was compelling to me. And there was a certainty in it. In fact, he was so certain that he set a date that Jesus Christ would return in the fall of 1994. It didn't happen, in case you're wondering. And there I am in the spring of 1994, listening to this analytical presentation of numbers from the Bible and things like that, and saying this could happen. This, this makes a weird kind of sense. And I'm reading the Bible. And I'm hearing what this man said at that point, which he stopped saying later on, which is the real problem. And how he went off the rails. What he was saying at the same time was, are you ready? Multiple tracks like that, are you ready? And I realized I was not ready. I realized that if Jesus came in less than the time it would take to give birth to a child, there's no way I was ready. I was very aware of my sin, my failures. And I heard at the same time that if you're not ready, that God has met you already. Then in fact, you're probably not Not going to realize you're not ready unless God's already at work. That's the way he works. It's this mysterious process where it seems like, you know, you're doing everything and all. And it's like you look back and you're like, oh, wow, I would have never chosen that. That he's at work in all of that. And to have your eyes open to that, to realize, you know what? God has already moved toward me. And to recognize I'm going the wrong direction. And my life is a mess. And I'm a jerk. And I'm not ready to meet God. And the reality is that there is a point in the day of judgment. And you will die once. And after that, you will appear at the judgment seat of God. And that is a, a promise that is very threatening. And it probably feels a little distant. And the flip side of it is this. That you have a life right now. That God wants to be better than it is. That He wants you to experience the promise of the future. And the hope that takes away that fear of judgment. And the only way it will come is if you recognize that He's already met you. He's already done all that is required. And you need to believe it. You need to recognize that your sin and your, your guilt and your shame, all are oriented in the wrong direction, then repent of those things, particularly every particular sin you can think of. Say, Lord, I'm sorry for that. And to turn from it to God and say, I believe your promises that this is why God came down in sandals to be crucified. Why he lived perfectly, but had to die judged by humanity. And he rose victorious over the grave and hell, and the devil, and has sent His Spirit into your hearts, if you will receive Him, that you might have new life. With Him. That you might be set apart. On a mission recognizing your purpose. That you might experience dramatic change. Now, if you grew up in the church, it's sometimes hard, and you want to have this great testimony of, oh, yeah, you know, I killed 10 people, but then, you know, you know when I was two, I heard, you know, Jesus, and I changed my life or whatever, right? Sometimes growing up in the church, you, you don't have a dramatic change. So for your assurance, I'd encourage you to think about how your life is different, maybe like a wonderful life kind of reflection on your life, the choices you've made, And look at the, particularly at your regrets. And think about would I have this regret if I didn't know the Lord? If He hadn't met me? And then bury it and thank Him for what you have. You know, if you have come to that place where you know Him and you have experienced that new life. And you want to live it more to the full, or maybe you're wondering if you have. This week, I'd especially challenge you as we do have the Lord's Supper next week. I'd encourage you to to reflect this week. Spend some time. You know, the overarching uh, theme, looking at Mark chapter 1 in these couple of months I wanted to intentionally kind of contrast it with all the notifications we get on social media and on our smartphones and all the little red circles with all the urgent demands on our time, right? And to say, you know, all those things are calling us to follow them. And that really the life that is full and meaningful will have those things in it, but will above all else be marked by following Jesus, And he gives you that notification here. And so one of the things I'd encourage you this week to think about doing is to set aside some time. Maybe for you it's in the morning, maybe it's at the end of the day, maybe it's right in the middle or something. But set apart some time where you are set apart. Where you turn aside the phone, put it on airplane mode, put it in the other room, something. And just just sit there, maybe with a printed Bible, if you can't trust yourself with the digital. And maybe just... Think about what it would mean that God came down in sandals. That he, that he cared enough to tell you how to prepare to meet him. And that he offers that to you. Just sit there, maybe in silence even, without the noise and everything else, and, and ask him about your mission. What's he want you to do? How has he set you apart? And maybe that doesn't maybe that means you gotta be a missionary somewhere. Maybe that means you know you need to join, quit your job, and, and start working with CEF or something like whatever, right? I don't know. But God knows. And you're never gonna hear him. You're never gonna experience him the full unless you slow down enough to be a little quiet. Unless you spend some time in his presence. And and, and not only just that mission, that positive sense, but also the, the negative. Lord, where where do I need to repent? Lord, where am I falling short in word and thought and deed? If you need help there, turn in your Bible to Exodus 20 and look at the Ten Commandments. Pastor David did a great job praying today. Go listen to his prayer. Roll it back in the video. In the prayer where he focused on basically the Ten Commandments worked out in our lives in several different ways. Asking the Lord, where do you need to repent? And then believe. At the end of it all, say, Lord, I believe that you have met me. I believe that you are good. And I'm going to show up on Sunday morning expecting to experience you. And I don't know what that's going to look like, but Lord, I'm going to be there. Will you pray with me? Lord Jesus, thank you that you have loved us enough to tell us how to prepare to meet you. In fact, you have already met us. You're, you're, You're carrying us I pray you would continue that good work. Give us wisdom. Give us courage, conviction, faith, repentance, all the good gifts that you offer. Lord, give them to us, and especially this week. Help us to set aside some time to just listen to you. We pray in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.